Harvest New Beginnings Church is located in Oswego, Illinois. We exist for God's glory alone, encouraging each other to have a deep love for God and a sincere love for people. This message is brought to you by Pastor Scott Poling. Queen Elizabeth. Queen Elizabeth reigned for 70 years and 214 days. And this spring... On May 6th, her son Charles will officially be coronated with this title. His Majesty King Charles III of the United Kingdom and its 14 commonwealths. He will take part in a ceremony that has already happened 62 times. The same ceremony has happened 62 times over the past 1,195 years. Charles on that day will hold the sovereign's orb representing his authority. He'll hold the sovereign scepter, symbolizing his power. The St. Edward's crown will be placed upon his head, all 440 precious and semi-precious jewels of it. He will sit in the coronation chair like his mother before him, and then move to the red chair, the chair of estate. He will then leave Westminster Abbey wearing a different crown. He will wear this crown, the imperial state crown, with all 2,868 diamonds, along with sapphires, rubies, pearls, emeralds, just to name a few. At the moment Charles is crowned, the guests will cry out, God save the king! Trumpets will blare and bells ring from churches across the kingdom and there'll be a 62-gun salute fired from the Tower of London. Millions of people will line the streets, shouting and waving flags as the procession takes place. It will be a very special day. It will be a special day for him, special day for the country, and it'll be a special day for the fortunate few who see it unfold up close and personal, who are inside Westminster Abbey. It was a very special day for one man who witnessed the King of Kings on his throne. He watched the attendants serve him, worship him, and proclaim his praise. He stood with fear, awe, and trembling. His name was Isaiah, and he was given the high and holy privilege like few have ever had of not being in Westminster Abbey, but being and standing in the very temple of God, the throne room of the King of Kings, beholding the King. Isaiah was given a vision, and he watched, and he listened to pure worship, pure worship, and he recorded what he saw, and he recorded what he listened to. And what it does is it gives us an insight and teaches us about pure worship, real worship, what it is and what it isn't, what it should be and what it should not be. And he helps us grow and understand. See, there are many Christians and there are many churches that are desperately in need of understanding what real worship is. There's a lot of confusion out there among believers even about what worship is and isn't, what it should be and shouldn't be. And we desperately not only need to understand real worship, you and I need to practice real worship. Worship that God wants. Worship that God desires. Worship that he teaches us about. We started a new series called Real Church. And, and last week, we learned that a real church understands the necessity and priority of God's holy word. We hold to this unapologetically, we preach it, we teach it, we learn it. This is the word that God has given us. 
And I would encourage you, if you were not here last week, to, to podcast it. Go online and listen while you're exercising, listen while you're driving somewhere, but go ahead and listen and learn what God has to say about real church when it comes to the Word of God. This week, we're going to learn that real church understands real worship, and real church practices real worship. And real worship isn't about songs. It's not about music. It's not about your preferences and what you like as opposed to somebody else. It's not about traditions of one church over traditions of another church. Real worship, according to Jesus, is worshiping in spirit and in truth. And he told us as he talked to that woman at the well in John 4 that that's who the Father seeks, are real worshipers who worship in spirit and truth. And to worship in spirit means two things. It means you cannot worship apart from the Holy Spirit, but it also means human spirit. In other words, worship is not about externals. It's about your soul, your heart before God in reverence and adoration and worship and awe. So we're told to worship in spirit. We're also told to worship in truth. The truth of the scriptures of who God is and what God wants. Not based on feelings. Again, not based on preferences or traditions. And so we worship in spirit and truth and that's the worship we see in Isaiah chapter 6. And I invite you to turn to Isaiah chapter 6 right now. As we see worship in spirit and worship in truth. And Isaiah sees real worship, and he listens to real worship, and Isaiah partakes in real worship. And although Isaiah is not a pastor and Israel is not the church, we learn important lessons about worship for us as individuals and for us as a church. And so read along with me in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah chapter 6, and starting in verse 1, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphim were standing above him. They each had six wings. With two, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they flew. And one called out to another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. His glory fills the whole earth. The foundations of the doorway shook at the sound of their voices. And the temple was filled with smoke. Real worship, we see first, rests in the absolute sovereignty of God. That's where it starts. Now, we're told this is the year of King Uzziah's death. And you may say, so, let's get on with it. Take, take me into the throne room. Come on, I want to get to the good stuff, the exciting stuff. Context is crucial. King Uzziah reigned 52 years on the throne of Judah. He was the longest reigning good king. And under his rule and under his reign, the country experienced incredible prosperity and stability and security and peace and protection and spirituality and godliness. It all ends now. From here on out, the nation goes into serious decline. Decline politically, economically, militarily, and spiritually. The days of Judah's greatness and grandeur are over, and the days of unsettling uncertainty have just begun. Things don't look good. Do you understand what God is saying to Isaiah? It doesn't matter if Uzziah's on the throne, the only thing that matters is I am on my throne. Amen. That's all that matters. We rest in the sovereignty of our God, not the sovereignty of any man. 
So no matter what happens to a once great nation, God is on his throne, worship him. And no matter what leader falls from power or comes to power, God is on his throne, worship your God. And no matter the uncertainty of any economy or personal safety, God is still on his throne. Worship your God. And no matter how far a nation drifts from or runs from God, God is on his throne. Worship his God. God's people need never panic because God is on his throne. We worship God because we trust in God. And that's why so many Christians, they're not good at worshiping. Because they're not good at worshiping, they're not good at trusting God worried about life, all upset, all anxious, living in fear. You can't worship God if you live in fear. You can't worship God if you're constantly worrying. You have got to trust in the sovereignty of your God and then you will finally understand what it means to worship God. Trusting God and worshiping God go hand in hand. Real worship rests in the absolute sovereignty of your God. Secondly, real worship never loses sight of the majesty of God. And here Isaiah is transported to the very throne room of God where the king is high and exalted and lifted up and and reigning in heaven. And Isaiah, we're told here in verse 1, sees the Lord. Well, wait a minute. I thought no one could see the Lord and live. At least that's what Moses was told when he asked God in Exodus 33, please let me see your glory. And God responded, you cannot see my face for humans cannot see me and live. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, we learn that he is the blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings and lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no man, no one has seen or can see. No one can see God in his pure essence, lest you be consumed immediately. Hebrews 12, 29 teaches, for our God is a consuming fire. Well, then how did Isaiah see the Lord? Please understand this. You cannot see God in his pure essence and form, but you can see God in his human manifestation and form. And that's who the Lord Jesus Christ is. John chapter 118, no one has ever seen God, the one and only son who is himself God is at the father's side. He has revealed him. See, you cannot see God as spirit, but you can behold him as human in the second person of the Trinity. Do you understand who Isaiah is seeing? He is seeing the pre-incarnate Christ, Jesus, King of kings and Lord of lords, is seated on his throne. He is Adonai. He is Lord. He is sovereign ruler. John 12 makes this clear. Even though he, that is Jesus, had performed so many signs in their presence, they did not believe him in Jesus. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah, the prophet. Verse 41, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory. Whose glory? He saw Jesus' glory, the King of Kings' glory, the Lord of Lords' glory. And he spoke about him, Jesus. That's the context. Isaiah sees the Lord Jesus in all his glory on the throne. He is the King of Kings. He is the Lord of Lords. He is the second person of the Trinity. Real worship beholds and believes in the majesty of Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, God himself in the flesh. We're told that the hem of his robe fills the temple. The hem just means the fringe of his robe. See, here's a picture of King George VI and his queen in their coronation robes. Look at those puny little robes. They don't fill that church or that place at all. Do you understand Jesus' robe? Just the fringe of it fills the temple. 
He's attended by angels in verse 2, seraphim. Now, there are different classes of angels. You may have heard of AS2, angel second class. This is not who we're talking about. We're not talking Clarence. We're talking seraphim. And there's only one passage in the Old Testament that teaches on the seraphim, these angels, and you're in it. Isaiah chapter 6. Seraphim means burning ones, representing the holiness of God. There's only one book in the New Testament that teaches on the seraphim, and that's the book of Revelation in chapter 4, 5, and 6. They stand above him, ready to serve him, attend to his commands, and they have six wings. Cherubim, different from seraphim, only have four wings. These have six wings. We're told, two, they cover their faces in reverence and awe, unable or unworthy to behold the king in his brilliance and beauty. They cover their faces. With two, they cover their feet in reverence and humility before the king of kings. And with two, they fly, worshiping, ready servants. Here's one artistic rendering showing these wings, covering faces, covering feet, and flying. Real worship never loses sight of the majesty on high and who he is and what is taking place in heaven. Real worship next stands in awe, the holiness of God, the power of God, and the glory of God. And that's the angelic proclamation in verse 3. One calls to another, holy, 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 holiness. The Lord of armies, power. His glory fills the whole earth. Glory. Do you understand angels worship communicating the holiness of God? And they never stop proclaiming his holiness. In Revelation 4, these four living creatures had six wings, seraphim, covered with eyes around and inside. Day and night they never stop saying, holy, 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 the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. His holiness is eternal. He has always been holy. He is holy. He will always be holy. Worship communicates God's holiness. To see him as holy and to think on his holiness and to praise him as the one who is holy and to communicate to others that he is holy. What do we communicate about God? What do we communicate to God? We, we proclaim many attributes of his, which is worship. We talk of his grace and his forgiveness and his mercy and his goodness and his love. Don't leave out his holiness. He is a thrice holy God forever and eternity. Worship your holy God. Think on your holy God. Proclaim his holiness. Tell others of his holiness. And holy means pure. Separated from any and all sin and everything and anything to do with any sin. So opposite from this world is holiness. And that is what you are called to. To be like God. And that's what I'm called to. To be like God. First Peter chapter 1. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance. Don't go back to the way you used to live in sin. Stay far away from it. But as the one who called you is holy, you are to be holy in all your conduct. There is not to be an area of your life that is not holy, child of God. Do not go back to that little pet sin that you like to play with during the week. Don't go back to that deep, dark closet that you keep in the house of your life. 
You are to be holy in all of your contact, and that is what God calls you to and me to. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. For you know that you were redeemed, verse 18. Why be holy? Because I saved you. I redeemed you from that sin. I rescued you from your empty way of life with no meaning and no purpose, inherited from your ancestors. And I redeemed you, he says, not with perishable things like silver and gold. Oh, no, no, something much more costly. The precious blood of Christ, the King of kings, who sits on the throne in holiness. He died to save you from your sins. His unblemished, his blood of Christ, unblemished and spotless like a lamb. He says, that's why I call you to holiness. Because I am a holy God who has made you holy and I want you to live in holiness. And that's what we did. We remembered that in our communion time. So we held the bread symbolizing his body that was broken. So we partook of the juice symbolizing his blood that was shed. He was a holy sacrifice. And he made you holy in his presence because of that sacrifice. See, a real church, a real church recognizes God's holiness and worships God in his holiness and separates from any and all things unholy. See, worship is a lifestyle of holiness, not just an hour of holiness on a Sunday morning. Worship is your life. Worship is a life of holiness to your king. Start understanding what worship is and start worshiping God with how you live. We can't worship a holy God living an unholy life. That's not worship. That's hypocrisy. And some of you are hypocrites not worshipers. And it's time that you become a worshiper of your holy God. Now, God is not seeking perfection, but he knows none of us will ever be perfect, but he is seeking sanctification, growing in godliness and growing in holiness. And he's a thrice holy God. Holy, holy, holy. It's the only attribute of God repeated anywhere in Scripture. And he's a lot of different attributes that are incredible. But we never see that he is love, love, love. Or mercy, mercy, mercy. Or just, just, just. Or sovereign, sovereign, sovereign. It is the only attribute of God repeated three times. Holy, holy, holy. Why? Some believe it has to do with the temple itself. That as you approach the temple... He is holy. And as you go into the first room, the holy place, he is holy. And as the high priest would go into the holy of holies, he is holy. We don't know. But obviously very special and unique is this attribute of God. And so the angels worship communicating the holiness of God. And they worship communicating the power of God. He is the Lord of armies, sovereign ruler, Adonai. And armies is, is plural meaning there are countless angelic armies invisible to the human eye, but they are there around us. It was Elijah with his servant. They were surrounded by a massive Aramean army, and Elijah's servant was full of fear in 2 Kings chapter 6. And Elijah told him, don't be afraid, for those who are with us outnumber those who are with them. 
Elisha prayed, Lord, please open his eyes and let him see. So the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he saw that the mountain was covered with horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. You are not alone, child of God. There is a Lord and he is the Lord of armies. The Lord's words to Peter in Matthew chapter 26. Or do you think that I cannot call on my father and he will provide me here and now with more than 12 legions of angels? Jesus says I can have 12 legions of angels in a second at my disposal. A Roman legion was between 5,000 and 6,000 Roman soldiers. This was about 72,000 angelic warrior beings at his, at his disposal like that. One angel strikes down 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in one night in 2 Kings chapter 19. Those boys are bad. They don't mess. The Lord of armies controls those. He's all powerful. He is sovereign king of kings. They worship communicating the holiness of God, the power of God, and the angels worship communicating the glory of God in verse 3. His glory fills the whole earth. That's a lot of glory. It's glory hard to miss. Sadly, some do. Psalm 19 talks about his glory and his creation. The heavens declare the glory of God. And the expanse proclaims the work of his hands day to day, pours forth speech that God is the glorious creator. Night after night, they communicate knowledge. Just look up at the stars at night. There's no speech. There's no words. Their voice is not heard. Their message is going out to the whole earth and, the whole, and their words to, to the ends of the world. They don't even speak a word, but yet they proclaim the glories of God. Everywhere creation declares the glory of God. Romans chapter 1, his invisible attributes, that is his eternal power, divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what has been made, what he has made. The creation of God should stir our hearts to worship our God. Every sunrise you see should result in your worship. Every sunset, every intricate insect, every snowflake that falls so individualized. Every color of a flower, every cloud in the sky, every clap of thunder, every, every eyeball. Have you ever looked at your eye in the mirror? Every hand, just look at your hand, how it was designed and moves. Do you understand? You are a miracle of the creator God. Even every time you look at yourself in the mirror, you should be praising God for how he's created you. You are so unique. You are so special. It was Job who said, and I can't even fathom how, how bones are formed in the womb of a woman. Rock hard bones. He says, God, you're amazing. In the Psalms, you are fearfully and what? Wonderfully made. Stop and just give praise to your glorious God. And then listen to the power of their praise in verse 4. As the foundations of the doorway shake. The sound of their voices and the temple is filled with smoke. Now, these are huge foundation stones shaking at the sound of angelic voices. When, when I speak God's praise, doorways don't shake. They don't even move. Think of the power of these angelic beings and their praise to God. And then the temple fills the Shekinah glory of God at the dedication of Solomon's temple in 1 Kings. Priests came out of the holy place and the cloud filled the Lord's temple. Because of the cloud, the priests weren't even able to continue ministry. For the glory of the Lord filled the temple. It was a representation of his holiness and his power and his glory. And here is one puny little man, Isaiah, 
surrounded by the majesty and magnitude of this holy, powerful, glorious God with angelic beings calling out with door-shaking praise. What's his response? Look at verse 5. Woe is me, for I'm ruined, because I'm a man of unclean lips, and live among a people of unclean lips, because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of armies. Do you understand what real worship is? Real worship is humble acknowledgement of sin before God. That's what real worship is. It humbly acknowledges sin before God. Isaiah is overwhelmed with God's holiness and Isaiah is overwhelmed at the same time with his own sinfulness which makes for great worship. When you finally catch a glimpse of how utterly holy your God is and how utterly sinful you are, you'll be able to worship. And that's why some of us don't worship well. Because we really haven't caught a glimpse of how holy our God is and how sinful we really are. Notice his first response is not, wow, this is so amazing and cool, I'm so glad to be here. Can I get a selfie with a seraphim? His first response is an agonizing cry of self-condemnation. Woe is me, I am a dead man, I am ruined, I have no business being here, I am way out of my league, what am I doing here? It'd be like me somehow finding myself dining with King Charles right after his coronation. I'd be way out of my league. I, I wouldn't know what to wear. I wouldn't know the proper uh, protocols. I wouldn't know the proper etiquette. I wouldn't know, uh, you know what utensils to use. I would be kicked out so fast, especially because I'd be waving an American flag. But anyway, <laughs> Isaiah says, I'm unclean. Because I am a man of unclean lips, he says, I'm ruined because I'm a sinful man. He's saying, everything here is holy, and everyone here is holy, except me. I'm anything but holy. Do you realize Isaiah's biggest concern was his sin? That should be your biggest concern. Not the sin in somebody else's life wanting to take out the speck. Your biggest concern needs to be the log in your own eye. Your biggest concern should be your own sin before a holy, holy God. Maybe that's why we don't worship well. Because we're looking at the sin in everybody else's life. Instead of the sin in our own lives before a holy God. See, real worship requires honesty and real worship requires humility. And maybe that's why some of us don't worship really well. Because we're not honest before God and we're not honest with ourselves. And we're not humble before God. If anything, we're arrogant and egotistical as we look down our noses at other people. Do you notice there's no denial of Isaiah's sin? He doesn't deny it. He doesn't make excuses for it. He doesn't downplay it. He doesn't blame anybody else for his sin. So much worship is unworthy of God because we do not recognize his holiness and we do not admit our own sinfulness. He says, I'm a man of unclean lips and unclean lips flow from an unclean life and an unclean heart. That's what Jesus taught in Luke chapter six. An evil person produces evil out of the evil stored up where? In his heart. For his mouth speaks from the overflow of his what? 
his heart. So unclean hearts, unclean lives are what produce unclean lips. Just think of the sin that comes out of your mouth and my mouth. Think of the lies, the half-truths, the deception. Think of the bragging and the boasting of who you know and where you've gone and what you've done. Think of the criticizing of other people. Think of the whining and complaining we do when God says, I want you to be thankful in all things. The slander toward other people, the gossip that you've spoken behind people's back, cursing, mocking, making fun of others, joking in obscene ways. How many times? How many times did you and I sin with our mouths even this morning on the way to church before church or dare I say even sitting in church as you criticize somebody in the worship team for how they looked or how they sang. James chapter three talks about the tongue and it's not a pretty picture. You know what James says about your tongue and mine? He calls it a world of unrighteousness staining the entire body. It's a fire lit by hell. It's untamable. It's a restless evil and it's full of deadly poison. That's what you have in your mouth and I do too. That's our tongue. And it comes from an evil heart. See, we can't worship right when our lips and our lives are filthy. We're just going through the motions. We've got to grasp the depth of our own depravity that we are not good, we are unclean, we are depraved, we are sinful. Each year the president gives a State of the Union address. I want you to listen to God's State of Mankind address with these verses, and it's not a pretty picture. Luke 18, why do you call me good, Jesus asked him. No one is good except God alone. There is not a good human being on this planet, including you and me. We are not good, only God is good. Genesis 6-5, when the Lord saw the human wickedness was widespread on the earth and that every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time. Psalm 14, the Lord looks down from heaven on human race to see if there's one who is wise, one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, the hearts of people are full of evil and madness is in their hearts while they live and after that they go to the dead. You have been born and you live in a worldwide insane asylum. Look around. That's where you live and that's where I live. We live in a worldwide insane asylum. Praise God he has saved you in the midst of it. Praise God he has saved you from your insanity. Praise God he has saved you from your sin. In Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All. And we fall so far short of God's glory. None of us is good. So if you're here today and you think you're a good enough person, I'm going to go to heaven because I'm a good person. You're not going to heaven, friend. You're not good enough to go to heaven. You'll never be good enough to heaven. There's only one who is good enough to get you to heaven. And he is God who died on the cross to save you. We're not good. But don't despair. We're not good, but God is good. And God is gracious. And God is compassionate. And God is filled with love for you. And God came out of heaven on a rescue mission for you. God is good. 
And all who call on the name of the Lord will be what? They'll be saved. Call on the name of the Lord and let him save you from your insanity and let him save you from your sin. He says, woe to me, I'm ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips. And he says, and I live among a people of unclean lips. He says, just look around at all the people and how, how dirty they are. And I love this, he identifies with the people. He doesn't set himself apart and say, well, I'm so much better. There's so many Christians who do that. I'm so much better than these people in the world and my neighbors and you know, those co-workers and everything else. He acknowledges shared depravity with humanity. Stop looking down your nose at other people in their sin and realize he can save them just like he saved you. Amen. And you can tell them about Jesus who saves people from their sin. And so he acknowledges that shared depravity with humanity. He says, I'm ruined, I'm, I'm done because of my lips and because of the people. And then he says this, because my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of armies. You know what he says? He says, man, I am so filthy. I should not be beholding the king in his glory. One so filthy shouldn't be in the presence of one so holy. If even these sinless angelic beings are veiling their faces, what am I doing looking at the king on his throne? And he's convinced he deserves judgment. And he does. And so do I. And so do you. And here is the amazing fact. The same holiness that judges and condemns sin is the same holiness that saves and forgives and redeems us from our sin. This holy God will rightfully judge wicked humans in rebellion against him, but this holy God became the perfect sacrifice to save us from our sin. And he beholds the king of kings. I want you to understand something. One day you will too. One day, your eyes that God has given you will see the king in all of his glory, in all of his brilliance, and in all of his beauty. Job chapter 19. But I know that my redeemer lives, and at the end he will stand on the dust, and even after my skin has been destroyed, yet I will see God in my flesh in a resurrected, glorified body that God will give you fit for heaven. You will behold the king of kings. I will see him myself, my eyes will look at him, and not as a stranger, but as a child of the king. And my heart longs within me. Does your heart long within you to behold the king in all of his glory? Matthew 5, 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, say it with me, for they will see God. 1 John 3, dear friends, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet been revealed. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Ah, man with unclean lips and unclean life, saved by the beautiful work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Woman, man, child, give your life to him you will one day behold him. See, this is real worship. We learn real worship never forgets the forgiveness of God. Never forgets the forgiveness of God. Look at verse six and seven. One of the seraphim flew to me. In his hand was a glowing coal. He had taken it from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, now that this has touched your lips, your iniquity is removed and your sin is atoned for. Now, this is a frightening sight when you think about it. If you had a little sparrow flying at you, that'd be scary enough. 
He's already said that he's ruined. He's already said, woe is me. He's already expecting to die. And imagine this sixth-winged angelic warrior being whose voice shakes the foundations of the doorways of the temple, and he's carrying a hot coal in these tongs from the altar. Just imagine this, if you will. And he's coming, I'm not an angel, but he's flying right at you. And he's going to touch you on the lips with this thing. That's what Isaiah is experiencing right now after he's just said, woe is me, I'm a dead man. This angelic being flies at him. Just imagine this. Now there's two altars in, in heaven, two altars before the temple, at the temple. There's the altar of incense and there's the altar of sacrifice. And the fire that is on the altar of incense comes from the fire on the altar of sacrifice. So the fire on the altar of sacrifice provides the fire on the altar of incense. Please understand what this hot coal represents. It represents the sacrifice of God and the intercession of God. The sacrifice of God and the intercession of God. And that's just what filthy lips and a filthy life needs. God, we need your intercession and we need your sacrifice. And notice, it's all God initiated. There's no good works. It's pure God, pure grace. And good things happen when intercession and sacrifice hit sinful lips and sinful lives. We're declared clean. He says, your iniquity in verse 7 is removed. Think of the worst of sins, the worst of stains. Think of, the, think of a stain. You know, I was earlier in, when I was drinking the, um, the communion cup, I was trying to be careful not to spill on my pants because <laughs> it would stain. You know, sometimes the worst stains on clothing ruins clothing. The worst sins in your life need not ruin your life. God can remove the worst of sins. Don't think he can't forgive you. Don't think he can't save you. And it's instantaneous removal and permanent removal. Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us, they're gone when you come to Jesus Christ. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. It's based on his love and compassion for you. You may say, well, how can a hot coal do all this? Remember, it can't. It just points to the atonement. Sin must be atoned for, and that's the next part of the verse. And your sin is atoned for. And atonement means a sacrifice was made. So please understand this. This hot coal is representative and points to a deeper meaning. Forgiveness is based on, on atonement, the sacrifice on the altar. That's why we read in Hebrews 9, without the shedding of blood, there's no what? There's no forgiveness. And so Jesus had to die. He had to give his life so that you could be forgiven of sin, his precious blood. And so the hot coal on the altar is symbolic and representative of the cleansing power of atonement. This holy, powerful, glorious God who died for you. Real worship never forgets the forgiveness of God. Real worship results in complete surrender to God. Please get this. Worship is surrender. Say it with me. Worship is surrender. It's a response of deep gratitude. Look at verse 8. Then I heard a voice of the Lord asking, Who will I send? Who will go for us? I said, Here I am. Send me. So the Lord speaks. 
the king in all of his glory, the sovereign one, Adonai, Lord of all, exalted, seating high, speaks. The robe filling this temple speaks. Angels, the one angels dare not look at, speaks. This holy, 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 all-powerful, glorious God speaks. What is he going to say? What will he say? What will he ask? Who will I send? Who will go for us? I have work that needs to be done. I have ministry to be accomplished. I have messages that need to be spoken to people. Who will go? Who will speak? Who will serve? How could anyone refuse service to such a glorious, powerful, brilliant, beautiful, forgiving, incredible God? How could anyone refuse service to one who offered himself in his holiness to die the cruelest death to save them from their sin? What say you? What say you, Isaiah? What say you? What say you, child of God? God is asking, who will serve me? God is asking, who will go for me? God is asking, who will speak up for me? You've known the wonder of forgiveness. You've experienced the power of atonement and cleansing. Answer the call of your king. Child of God, answer the call of your king. What say you? God is asking. Who will serve me? Who will go for me? Who will speak up for me? And don't you dare tell him you're too busy. And someone else can do it. And when you get around to it. This is the king of kings in all of his glory who died for you to save you. Something is so wrong with so many of God's children. They don't understand what real worship is. They think worship is all about their likes and dislikes and the songs they like and they don't like and musical styles and musical tastes and preferences. The problem is we confuse real worship with real selfishness. Don't confuse real worship with real selfishness. Worship is service to the king of kings. Worship is surrender and service to his majesty. That's what worship is. Are you worshiping your God? Are you surrendered to your God? Are you serving your God? Because that's what worship is. He says, who will go for us? Plural. It's a plurality of persons. It's a reference to the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. For God only consults with himself, not humans. Who will go for us? And Isaiah's answer. Here I am. Send me. Simply amazing. This is amazing. Just a moment before, Isaiah had no hope. He was a dead man. He's fearing and facing certain judgment. He's unclean. And now, this one facing certain death and judgment is the privileged servant of the Most High, King of Kings and Lord of Lords of all glory, power, and holiness. Do you understand what he's saying? Serving God is one of your greatest privileges, and serving God is one of the greatest acts of worship. That's what worship is.
It's one of your greatest privileges, serving him. Don't you ever look down on serving God in some way. Just ask the angels. It's one of the greatest privileges to serve God. One of the greatest acts of worship is to serve God. Just ask Isaiah. See, life is not about serving yourself. It's about serving the king. And worship is a life committed to serve the king of kings. And he says, here I am. He doesn't say, there's Joe, pick Joe. He says, here I am. He doesn't say, I'm really busy right now, Lord, get to me later. He says, here I am, and Isaiah doesn't even know yet what the Lord is going to ask from him. Because God is worthy of anything and everything he asks of you. That's worship. Serving whatever he calls you to do, going wherever he calls you to do, saying whatever he wants you to say. Worship is willing service to the king of kings and his kingdom. And Isaiah, Isaiah is just a man, a sinful man. He's got no position as an angel with six wings, flying be behind the throne, above the throne. He doesn't have a voice that shakes the thresholds. He's just a sinful man that's been cleansed and forgiven by God. Do you understand? He can use you. Don't ever think that God doesn't want to use you. Don't ever think that God can't use you. Don't ever think that God can't cleanse you and take your life and make it useful for him and his kingdom. Serve your king. He's calling you. Answer the call. I close with this definition of worship by William Temple, one-time pastor in England and Archbishop of Canterbury. Worship is the submission of all our nature to God. It is the quickening of the conscience by his holiness, the nourishment of mind with his truth, the purifying of imagination by his beauty, the opening of the heart to his love, the surrender of will to his purpose. All this gathered up in adoration, the most selfless emotion of which our nature is capable. Amen. Real church understands real worship. And real worship rests in the absolute sovereignty of God, never loses sight of the majesty of God, stands in all of the holiness of God, the power of God, the glory of God, humbly acknowledges sin before God, never forgets the forgiveness of God, and results in complete surrender to God. That is worship. May we worship our great King. Amen. Let's pray. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. As a child of God, would you just thank him right now? You're his child. You're a child of the king. Would you worship him right now? Thank him for his sacrifice to save you. Thank him for the atonement and the cleansing of your life. Worship him as your holy God. Worship him as your all-powerful, sovereign God. Worship him as your creator God who fills the earth with his glory. Worship him. And confess any sin before him. No more pet sins. 
No more thinking worship is one hour on a Sunday. Dedicate your life to him right now. He is worthy of all worship and all your life. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. You may be here today and you have never come to faith in Jesus. He knows all of your sin and he loves you anyway. God came out of heaven to die on the cross to save you from your sin. And he will forgive you of any and all sin. And you may say, Scott, that is me. I need forgiveness. I'm sick and tired of the insanity in my life. I'm sick and tired of the sin in my life. I need God. What do I do? In the quietness of your heart right now, would you just call out to God? Just call out sincerely with words like these, Lord, I believe. I believe you love me. I believe you came out of heaven for me. I believe you died on the cross for me and my sin. God, would you please forgive me of my sin? Ask him right now. God, would you please forgive me? Would you please save me from my sin? I place my faith in you alone. I can never be good enough. I place my faith in you alone. Will you please save me? And will you please forgive me? And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. If you've been prompted by this message and are in need of a new beginning or would like more information about Harvest New Beginnings, visit atharvest.church.